Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. To begin with, I want to ask a question that can be rather uncomfortable, depending upon how you uh, look at it. But if someone confronts you eyeball to eyeball and points out to you that you're wrong, what do you do with that? What's your reaction inside in your gut feeling? What is, it, what is your response to that? And keep that in mind because I'm going to be a circle around to that as I develop this message this morning concerning a parable. And as you know, I've been going through the parables. I'm kind of jumping over the fence a little bit and going all the way to the last parable before Christ's crucifixion. And so we've traveled a long ways. I'm going to go back and I'm going to pick up the theme of the positive aspects of entering the kingdom of God through Jesus' parables. But so far, the parables that I've delivered to you have been of a negative stance or they could be interpreted as a negative stance or a cautionary parable, to say the least. And I'm going to go back after this and actually bring forth those things that are very positive and uplifting. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to assist us in this hour of worship. We pray, O Lord, as we bow before you, that your voice would be heard, not mine. You know my deficiencies. And your word is so precious to us. May it never be bent. So I pray, God, that whatever I speak today would be the authentic truth and that your spirit would take that which is spoken and do its work. Because we're all needy. Each one of us is very needy. But even beyond being needy, we have come to this place of worship in anticipation. We desire to see Jesus Christ the more. And we glory in that. At the end of the day, Lord, we always say, can we have more? So as your word is unpacked this day, if we can actually walk away from here once again and once again and say, praise God, Jesus Christ is beyond our imagination and our descriptions. And we love you and we pray, God, that you'll fill our hearts with that love. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, prior to this, I've been using the parables uh, in Luke. This one I've turned to Mark, and it's not that the parable itself is that much different than what's recorded in uh, Luke or in Matthew. All three of them carry the same parable. But the reason why I chose it is because of its stair-step preparatory 
uh, walk of Jesus Christ prior to the parable. And it was very clear. And it actually carries with it a message that dovetails with the parable itself. So as I'm going through it through here, there's three things that I want to break it down by. The first one is its context. I want to speak a little bit of the context of what happened prior to the parable being, being delivered. The second one is the proclamation itself or the indictment within the proclamation that Jesus Christ gave to his audience. And then the last one is application. And I could go on and on about the application. I'm going to make it fairly brief. I'm going to allow, hopefully, that the Holy Spirit will be speaking to your hearts in the proper way to, do, to give proper application. <clears throat> but this uh, parable, I'm going to start off right now, and it's from chapter 12 of Mark, if you want to turn there. The other ones are in Luke 20 um, and Matthew 21. But we're going to be majoring in Mark 12, and you'll see by the context, there's, there's a, a trail. There's actually a trajectory that Jesus is on that leads to this parable being uttered. But it's different than the other parables that I was giving to you before. There's three of them that I covered. Uh, Mike and Sue didn't hear those, but uh, the rest of you, I think, have been there when I was doing those parables. But those parables were interesting in as much as they both reveal truth and they conceal the truth on purpose. Jesus said it plainly. Disciples asked him, what are you doing? He says, I'm concealing some of this. I'm going to keep it from some of your folks. This parable is very unique in as much as it's, it's not about concealing anything. It's about revealing, opening the understanding of those that are standing before him that it's going to be a slam dunk right in their face. It's also unique in as much as it's both prophetic and it's also revelatory. He looks back through time, prior to his time. He gathers all the facts from the progression of the prophets, bringing them into this parable and just dropping it on the lap of the Jews at that time. So it is very unique. <clears throat> well, in the context... Jesus was asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? Now, the question itself begs, what are they referring to? What, what's going on? How is Jesus going to respond to that? And that's where I want to get into the context as it's presented to us in chapter 11, leading up to chapter 12. First of all, in chapter 11, it details the fact that, and this is the Passion Week. This is right before the crucifixion of our Lord. And you recall that day when uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he said, go get me a donkey and I'm going to ride in. And they threw their coats and palm trees and palm leaves and stuff in front of them. And said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that was Palm Sunday. Now in the, its context, I want to just do a brief, just a pause there. A, parent, a parenthetical as it is. This is a week before. This is right before his crucifixion in which Jesus Christ absolutely knew where he was going. It wasn't a guesswork. It was something that was right in the front of his conscience. And unfortunately, a lot of times when Christians hear that, they don't put their shoes in Jesus Christ's shoes. What would we be doing one week before our death? What would we be doing? 
would we be so concerned about not only giving instruction to those around them, but also warning those that are sitting in front of them? Would we actually be involved in that kind of passion for other people, or would we be sitting in our back room shaking to death? I fear the latter would be capturing a lot of people. How do I know that? This, this virus has scared people spitless. And they can't even think beyond that. Here's our Lord right before his crucifixion. And it's incredible what he's bringing to the audience. There's not only Palm Sunday, but then, and note, uh, as this is being declared, as these people are hailing Jesus, King of the Jews, and blesses the name who comes in the name of uh, our Lord. This is uh, taken from Psalm 118. And it's this, actually, this is going to be revisited as I go through here, Psalm 118. But the next thing uh, uh, along the trajectory is Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, this isn't in all the Gospels, but but it here is in this Gospel. And I particularly chose Mark because Luke doesn't have that. What he refers to prior to this question that's been put to him by the Sanhedrin, by what authority, is the weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus standing before Jerusalem and weeping for her, knowing that your day of visitation is here. But in this particular Gospel, the focus is on the fact that as Jesus is passing through, he's hungry, his disciples are with him, he looks at this fig tree, there's nothing on it. He curses it. Now, if we're a conehead, we're just absent in brains, we'll think, well, how stupid is that, to curse a fig tree just because it doesn't have. This is prophetic. It's actually going to be feeding in to the parable itself those things that don't bear good fruit. And he's speaking of Israel. That's what he's doing. And so if you put two and two together, it makes absolute sense why it was written like this, why it was presented to us. Well, the next uh, stop along the way into Jerusalem is this business of Jesus coming along and going to the temple and cleansing the temple. When he walks in and he what he does is he he takes out all the garbage and throws it outside the temple. And he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What are you you doing here selling and cheating and making money off of that which was supposed to be pure and holy? In essence, he finds spiritual bankruptcy within his temple. What a tragedy. So it dovetails along with the, uh, or after that, there was an explanation as the disciples saw the next day, looking at that fig tree, and it's all withered, and the whole thing is down. And then there's lessons that proceed from that. But I want to jump over that to the very root of the question, by what authority do you do these things? Because not only did Jesus, he came in in a most... Uh, kingly manner into Jerusalem and these scribes and Pharisees being jealous and um, looking at this, this, what is this person doing? And then he has the audacity to come into our temple and cleanse the temple. He has the audacity to even uh, curse a fig tree. So they ask the question, how do you do this? 
Why do you do it? And by what authority do you do, do, you do these things? Well, Jesus being Jesus, the best preacher, I think, that we could ever encounter, and certainly his mentality was such that he could foresee what, what, what it would do if he just blatantly answered them immediately. But he doesn't do that. So he throws them a bomb right in their lap. Was, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, if those scribes and Pharisees that day said, well, it's obvious, obviously from man, the people would have raised up and probably killed them because they were, they were real advocates of John the Baptist. They loved him. So they were driven by fear, and so they, answer, they said, we don't know. We actually don't know what the answer is because they knew if they said from heaven, they'd be in deep trouble because they then should have been following those things that John the Baptist had detailed in his proclamation of repentance. Well, now we get into the second part, the proclamation and indictment, because now Jesus is going to use this as a springboard, as he did in some of the other parables that I presented to you. There's always a context in which Jesus says, you know, these people oppose something that needs to properly be answered. And consequently, that's what I'm going to do. And so he goes into this parable of uh, the, the tenants, and some of them, the, t- the title is The Wicked Tenants. And certainly as you go through here, uh, I think Wicked ten- Tenants probably is the best descriptor of this parable. <clears throat> so I'm going to read the parable, and then we can get a, a handle on what's contained in it. Chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. And a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another one. They killed this one. And so, and so with many others... Some they beat, some they killed. But he had still one other. Notice this in the text, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived perceived that um, he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And remember what I said at the beginning, this is not a parable to conceal, but to reveal. In verse 12, it's very apparent that these blockheads knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Now I want to give you, and I did this also in the other parable that I spoke to you about, um, a vineyard. But I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 5, 
and I'm going to read um, this section concerning the vineyard as well. It's almost line for line. There's variations, but listen to the wordage as I go through this passage in Isaiah chapter 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Sounds very familiar. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst, in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, bloodshed for righteousness. That's what it is. And just keep in mind the audience that's right in front of Jesus. Scribes, Pharisees, the lawyers. It's made up. That's the Sanhedrin is listening to these things. And for sure, these people are warped. They have their own religion. But one thing you can say about these boys is they knew their scripture. So consequently, as, as Jesus is going through this parable, that had to be ringing bells in their head. Oh, I remember this. This is back in Isaiah. I remember these things being uh, prophesied. And it had to cut to the quick because he's looking at them. Uh, Okay, let's uh, take a closer look at the parable itself, piece by piece. And I don't want to uncover each each item. But one thing that we do actually observe, first of all, whoever this owner is, and we know from the context the owner is God. Everything belongs to God. The vineyard, all the land, all the people, everything belongs to God. But in his construction of the vineyard, he puts a wall around it, he puts a tower in it, right? So immediately we've been informed that this owner is a very careful owner. And he wants to protect protect that which belongs to him. And that watchtower itself is indicating those people that are the watchmen actually to warn those that are within the boundaries that the enemy is coming. You'll find these references in Ezekiel about people on the watchtower, what their responsibility is. Well, he rented it out as usual. I mean, if you have a parcel of land, you want to make something of it. So he rented it out. And the vine growers are represented as the spiritual leaders. And I think probably all of those that are standing beside him, it's a mixed group. You had the the religious elite, but you also had the followers of Jesus. There were participants in everything that was going on Palm Sunday. They're standing there listening to this. And I don't think it would take 
anybody any far guess to put two and to get two and two together when he's unraveling this parable. So they would understand the vine growers, the spiritual leaders. The payment due was when the grapes became uh, ripe enough, it was always given to the owner, the first fruits. That was supposed to always be given. And consequently, the first fruits were owed to the owner. So what does the owner do? He sends out a servant. He sends out a servant to collect the rent. And that's not as though it's something that's unjust. unjust. It belongs to God or it belongs to the owner. So you shouldn't be surprised if somebody comes for the payment when payment is due. Well, these servants that are offered up to do this work of collecting their due, we notice in Jeremiah 7, this is the comment concerning the servants that God has sent and it has been sending you know, from day one up until the time that Jesus Christ departs. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. Now, immediately, if you're thinking about these terms, you, you get very uncomfortable. Is this me? Do I have a stiff neck? Or even Stephen, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Boy, that made them very, very uncomfortable. Everybody has their idea that they're right, everybody else is wrong. The title of my sermon today is Judgment. Is Judgment. There does come a day of reckoning. And I know in the more liberal churches, they have the idea that God is love, for sure and for certain, God is love. But you know something? Intertwined with love is justice. If you didn't have a just God, you wouldn't have a loving God. It's not loving to bypass that which stinks, this dark, that's corrupt, it's evil. And so that's the gist of this. He is coming to do judgment to those people that refuse to hear him. Because the second servant was also sent, and notice the declension in the hearts of men in their their, uh, accepting or uh, embracing these people that the owner is sending their way for payment. They beat him. I mean, they they really beat him. But they beat him over the head this time, so it's more severe. So the first thing, the first servant... He was all broken up and they told him to get lost. The second one, this is bad in what they did. There's, you can see immediately there's a hardening of heart, hearts with these servants or these uh, growers of the vineyard. And it reminds us of something else that happened in Egypt, doesn't it? Time after time, God sent a plague and it escalated, didn't it? It stepped from one thing to the next, getting closer and closer and more inclusive each time. And guess what Pharaoh was doing? Oh, yeah, we better let him go. But his heart became harder and harder and harder. Well, the same picture is being delivered in this, this uh, parable as well. So what did they do? The owner sent a third servant. The third servant was actually killed. That's very, very serious. Now, we could stop there, but the little parentheses underneath it and many more were sent, and many more were killed. 
So we don't know how many in the parable that Jesus is referring to, but, but it's not just three. There was many that were sent and many that were treated brutally. Well, at this juncture, we do have to ask the question, and it's a legitimate question, what kind of owner would do this? I mean, after the first two, you would think he would back off and say, I got to do something drastic about this in a clean house. I need to actually get rid of these vine growers here and replace them with, with other vine growers. But he doesn't. He keeps sending them on and on again. You know, we talk about God's patience, God's long-suffering. And a lot of times it's a cheap Christian cliché. But isn't it true that even the fact that we're still here and Christ has not returned is a demonstration of God's tender patience, long-suffering? Because don't you every once in a while sit back in your chair and say, God, can you just get this over with? Because the evil is just rampant. And you sit back, I, I don't get it. Why don't you do? It's because of God's patience. He's going to bring about that which he had planned from the beginning in the exact time that he's declared in heaven. That's when it's going to happen. <clears throat> well, the owner thinks to himself, okay, enough is enough. I haven't received any produce from my land, so I'm going to send my beloved son. And I did pause when I was reading through this, uh, this text and I brought it to your attention, is my beloved son. I mean, he could have said just son, but he's referring back to his baptism. Those people that were gathered around his baptism and the declaration from God, this is my beloved son. Oh, this is ringing a bell. He must be talking about God's son. He wants these people to receive this right in their face of who he's talking to. Because remember the question on the table is, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus is answering them. And if they have half a brain, already they're getting the picture. Oh, that's by what authority he's doing these things. <clears throat> so the servants are represented as prophets. Okay, those are all those that way, way back as they're moving through the history uh, leading up to Jesus Christ, God sent prophet after prophet. Um, you know, Elijah, you know what happened to him? They ran him off into the desert. Uh, Jezebel, good night. What, what a terror. And he had to run. He had to take off. They didn't accept him, even after the miracles that he performed on Mount Carmel. Isaiah, according to church custom, they sought him in two. I can't imagine that happening. Kit's going to be dealing with that real soon in Hebrews. They're going to be talk, talking about all the uh, things that happened to the saints. Ezekiel, he was cast into exile. Daniel, you know him, he was thrown into the lion's den. But then he tamed him. That was cool. I could just see their faces. John the Baptist, they beheaded him. So time and time again, as God sends his servants, his prophets, they're, they're met with animosity, with hatred, Exile, killing them, etc. <clears throat> but you know something, the answer, and I, I just love this part of it. In the scripture it says, you can see Jesus pause when he's confronting 
this, this mixed group. Those that are not guilty, they're okay. They're going to be fine. But those actually that are responsible for what they're planning for Jesus right away, what will the, the owner of the vineyard do after all of this has been revealed to them? Servant after servant being killed. What will the owner do? I can see him just pausing. Okay. It's right in their face. Here's the answer to it. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Okay, now in Luke, now I do like the way Luke has unpacked this because there's kind of a gasp. May it never be. God forbid. I'm, I'm retranslating. God forbid this, this would happen. Because who's in the audience here? These are the Jews. These are the people that are God's chosen people. That's their kingdom that has been established with God as the ruler for centuries. And it's coming up there, and all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, you know, they're going to be destroyed, and it's going to be given to another. And so that gasp is, is what you, you, you are joking, aren't you? Well, Jesus Christ is not joking here. It's very, very serious. And that's why I said at the beginning, if you're thinking in terms of Jesus is not going to vindicate his name, you're mistaking. Absolutely mistaking. He will vindicate his name. <clears throat> in John 1, 11 and 12, it says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. You got to get this, born not of blood. And I know that that must have made the Israelites just seethe with anger. Nor of the will of the flesh, <clears throat> nor of the will of man, but of God. Boy, that is what a demarcation. It just separates the sheep and the goats right there. Just whack like that. Well, Jesus, after declaring that, he, he switches metaphors because we've been dealing with a vineyard. So he says, oh, I'm going to focus it so that you can really get the point here. I'm going to move to the temple. I'm going to move to the stone of the temple. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And I want to stop there for a second and just notice a couple of things concerning this. Uh, when uh, backing up concerning the uh, the declaration of the temple, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, Sunday, Palm Sunday, they were chanting the Hillel songs go, going up to the top of the temple. Psalm 118. Once again, he's referring to Psalm 118. That was fresh in their mind. Because you turn to Psalm 118 in this very thing concerning the stone being rejected. It's contained in that. So it wasn't as though this is brand new to them or it's going to confuse them. Israel rejected the stone of perfection. Whatever they built on is skewed. So if you get in your mind the importance of the cornerstone, and this is actually not the most important thing of what he is speaking about, but if you have a cornerstone and you're erecting a building and it's misshapen or it's not, it's not uh, the right stone to start the whole building, this whole building is going to be skewed in one way or another. 
So naturally, it is the chief cornerstone. It's the most important stone to be placed there. But I think instead of this, as, as this is being unpacked here, my mind went to the fact that uh, this, is, this is referring to something that's far more important just than the building stone itself. Because it has to do with judgment, doesn't it? And the judgment in Daniel chapter 2 was, wasn't there a little stone not made of hands? And it came flying out of the air and it destroyed all the kingdoms of the earth. That little stone. And that's why it's referred to the stone of stumbling because whoever stumbles on this, it will kill him. Whoever the stone falls on, referring back to Daniel chapter 2, it'll kill you. He's speaking to the Jews about this. They're stumbling over that stone that God has sent. Matthew's uh, summary statement on this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And on Isaiah uh, chapter 8, we are reminded once again, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a, sna- and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be s- snared and taken. And like I said before, the audience itself, the religious elite, they knew their scripture. So it was not as though Jesus is talking along and all of a sudden he brings a reference to a stone and they're saying, what's that all about? They knew what it was about. It was most serious in his declaration. So really, uh, in verse 12, when it says that these, these scribes and Pharisees, they perceive what was going on, and you know what their answer was? They left Dodge. They got out of Dodge. They, they didn't admit anything. They did not repent. They just stormed off. They took off. But they got their answer, didn't they? Because the answer that was posed to him, by what authority do you do this? By heaven and earth. Matthew 28 uh, reminds us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all people. And so when we come up against this question, Christians indeed can answer. It's by that authority that Jesus Christ has done what he has done. But the Jews, they rejected it. Not all Jews. The scribes and Pharisees, they rejected it. They wanted nothing to do with it. Now I want to go into application. I'm not going to spend too much time in this. But here is the point at which I think it's very, very necessary for people to do work in their own heart, to actually do a review in their own heart. Even as I was talking to my Sunday school students this morning, it is very easy, and it's actually the propensity of everybody to look across the fence and say, they're guilty, I'm not. Okay? Well, in this unpacking of a parable, you have a people that are definitely guilty, And in fact, in a couple of days, they're going to be the very people that put Jesus Christ to death. The timeliness of this parable is incredible. 
Because instead, unlike the other parables that I presented, this parable doesn't have that open door. Okay, now you can repent. No, this is a judgment. This is a judgment on Israel. I'm going to smash it, and I'm going to give this kingdom to others from afar off, the Gentiles. That's what I'm going to do. So as they received that, there was no repentance in their heart. Does it preclude anyone in that mix of scribes and Pharisees, whoever was gathered there, from repenting? No, it doesn't. But in large, that was the answer of Israel. We don't want nothing to do with it. And they walked out the door. So when I'm doing this thing of application, I want us to get it in our mind that oftentimes we sit in the 21st century seating arrangement in the way we have been educated in the church, etc., with a mindset that we're guilt-free, that we got all our ducks together. That's why I asked the question right at the beginning, when you're confronted with the fact that in whatever area it is, you're wrong, what is your first inclination? And I think a lot of people say, well, yeah, I'll think about it, or you know, if I'm wrong, I'll change. But I find nine times out of ten, people, they harden their heart against the very idea, I could be wrong. And especially when it comes to things that pertain to the spiritual world, our salvation, our understanding of God, very, very defensive. And I want to bring you back to another time that I was giving a lesson here from Samuel, Samuel, uh, Samuel 2, chapter 12. And I put it right in your face there when Nathan gave his parable to David, trying to wake him up because he was sound asleep. He was guilty. He was absolutely guilty. And Nathan came and woke him up. And remember uh, David's response. He was angry. He wanted to go clean somebody's clock. And when Nathan looked him in the eye and said, you are that man, it rocked him. And you know what happened after that? David repented. David repented. Well, then there's another incident in the New Testament, not to isolate just the Old Testament. In their response, uh, Peter is speaking to the troops after the crucifixion. And this is given in Acts uh, chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. Now, you got to get this. People are right there in front of him. They already did it. And somebody is speaking eyeball to eyeball. And they said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now he says this, skipping down a few verses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. I love that. For sure and for certain. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Their heart was struck. And in that declaration, what should we do? 
It's that softening of the heart that's absolutely crucial for people to actually admit we're wrong. And we have to change. And I find that when things are brought to our attention that need to be paid attention to, we have to have that, that exact same response of if I'm guilty, I need to repent, I need to change. Because we've got three instances. The first in Samuel with David, he repented. You have this instance here. Those Jews at that time, many of them did repent. Some of them didn't. They're hard-hearted. They took off. But the one in the parable, these guys, they didn't repent. There was no indication that they changed their mind, obviously, because in a couple of days, they put him to death. That's how hard their hearts were. Is this really a relevant uh, sermon for us today? I got to thinking to myself, churches by and large, you guys have experienced this. You go to one one church body after another church body. The thing that's common in all of those church bodies is they assume they take the stance that they're right. They're okay. They're doing what God has asked them to do. But if you look in Revelation just in the unpacking of the seven churches in Revelation. Guess what? Just take a little close look at that. There's only two churches out of seven that there's no indictment against them. Just two churches. Smyrna and Philadelphia. All the rest of the churches, they did good in some things, but in other things, it was bad news bears. And what God warned them against, if they didn't change their ways, is extremely drastic. It's not talking about losing salvation. People always, they, they, they got that tripwire in front of them. Did they lose their salvation? You, are, no. But you know something? If a church, we're not talking, talking about individuals, but if a church has its lampstand taken away from it, their proclamation is dead. Deader than a doornail. And I fear all too often bodies of believers or not getting with a program, and asking God in all humility, God, would you search us and wash us? Make us clean. Wash us in your blood. Cause us to see who we are. I should have brought that little uh, list that Carla gave me about reasons why we don't pray. I should have, that, I had to laugh. I truly had to laugh. Some of the reasons are just hilarious, but they're sad as well. Just sad. I don't feel like it. I'm too busy. Uh, it doesn't, prayer doesn't do any good anyway. On and on and on. There was lots of reasons, but it was actually, it was pathetic. In the church itself, when I look out the church in general, I see, a, I see an apathy, I see a dullness, I see a lack of enthusiasm for worship that if Jesus Christ, and he is, by the way, Jesus Christ stands before us, and he asks us very pertinent questions as well. Where is our heart? Where is our heart? As a body of believers, 
And if your heart is there, where is your fruit? So sure and for certain, there are some churches that will be like that fig tree that he looked at, and it's going to wither and die. It will not give off the word of God. It'll be another gospel. May we be a people always praying for our body, but not just our body, but first of all, praying for our body that we're listening to God's word instead of telling him the word. God doesn't need us to preach to him. We need him to preach to us. Then lastly, we need to be praying for other bodies of believers in this, this nation. All, all these people that are gathered even this day. And there's many, many people that they gather and Jesus Christ is not exalted once. Man is exalted, but not Jesus Christ. Was this parable totally irrelevant? I don't think so. Touched my heart is just a review that sometimes we think we're better than we truly are. When Jesus looks into your eyes, he says, are you, are you actually doing business with what you're supposed to be doing? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for, once again, uh, just reading from your scripture, listening to it. And we confess that all too often, we kind of struggle with putting our shoes in their shoes. Just the, uh, just the weight, the magnitude, the the importance of the timing of this parable. And uh, Jesus, we so love you for your dedication, your determination, not wasting one moment. Everything was very purposeful. And you're doing all that was necessary, all that was called for in preparation for the climax of climaxes. We pray, God, that we will not be a people that are guilty of closing our ears and having hard hearts. We can't even imagine if you would stand in front of us and say, you are truly guilty of having a hard heart and not listening to my word. That's probably out of the realm of possibility of any of us. Even today, as we heard those words in your, your scripture that said to the Jews that had the kingdom, it's being taken away from you. That was so stunning to them. And I pray, God, an indictment against our church will never be stunning. And I pray that it will be complimentary. But do you do that work, Lord. You open up that door to understanding. We can have our doctrine right, and we can just just glory in the fact that we do we hold you up high. What is it that we're missing? Help us to be bold, to listen to your word, and bow down to it. Jesus Christ's precious name, Amen.